So tonight, if you will open your Bibles to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, we're going to look at just three verses here, verses 12 through 14. This is an interesting text and somewhat of surprising text in a lot of ways. Maybe it's a text that you've thought about long ago and uh, never struggled with anything that was said there, but I'll have to admit that there's a number of things in this text that kind of were shocking to me and uh, surprising and I think something that uh, we Christians in general have neglected uh, to understand and to implement in our lives. So in John chapter 13 through 17, Jesus is in the presence of just his apostles. This is the last hour, if you will, the day before that he is going to be crucified and he is giving instructions to the apostles. And as I have often in teaching someone cautioned, be very careful when you're reading John 13 through 17 that you understand that Jesus is just talking to the apostles here. And while there are some things in this text that would apply to all Christians, generally speaking, you have to be careful because there are many things that he says that are applied only to the apostles. And so don't just willy-nilly take some of those things and think that it applies to you. This text, though, seems to make an exception to that rule. Notice as Jesus is telling the apostles they are about his departure, they are obviously concerned. They, they are feeling like, wow, what is going to happen here? The one we've been with now for three and a half years, who, who's taken care of us, who's brought us through many difficulties, is now going to depart. He's given us a lot of instructions. But are we going to be able to handle this? And so he has comforted them. A very common text in the beginning of chapter 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we, we, we love that part of the text. But notice what he says when he gets down to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the first interesting thing about the text is is that he begins with the words, whoever believes in me. He doesn't restrict this to simply the apostles, though when I read it, and especially when I read that last part, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. And I think, oh, well, that can't be me. That just couldn't be me. That's got to be the apostles. And then especially when I read earlier in the verse that this person will do greater works than Jesus, I go, well, I know it's not me. Because who could do greater works than Jesus? Maybe it's the apostles. The apostles are the ones who could, who could maybe do greater works than Jesus, but it isn't going to be me. But then I have to grapple with that beginning of the text. Whoever believes in me will do greater works. He doesn't just say the apostles were. He says whoever believes in me will do the greater works. And the context is that the believer is going to do the greater works and that the believer is told that you can ask me anything in my name and if you ask anything in my name, I will do it uh, because I'm uh, 
I'm going to the Father, and, and that the Son may that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and this is what this is all about. So how do I make sense of that? Could it possibly be that this text would apply to you and to me? Would this text really mean some of these things? Can I really ask in this way and whatever I would ask in his name that he would do it? Is that what I'm supposed to make sense of? So let's delve into this. Let's let's see if we can understand some of these words here. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is some of the words that Jesus used here are words that are taken out of the Old Testament. And he is referring to some things that were talked about in the Old Testament. And that obviously is going to give us some help in understanding what Jesus is saying here. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that there are two simple things to point out. The first is that I would ask myself the question, did the apostles do greater works than Jesus? Now, my tendency is when I see greater works, I think of miracles. Isn't that kind of what you think about? All right, well, did the apostles do greater miracles than Jesus? Uh, no. (laughs) No. So then I can eliminate the idea that this is talking about miracles. This is talking about something other than miracles because the apostles didn't even do greater miracles than Jesus. And I know we're not going to do greater miracles than Jesus if Jesus did, if the apostles didn't. Therefore, certainly this is something else. This is not talking about doing something miraculous that would be greater than what Jesus did. And therefore... It is, again, something that I need to delve into and understand more more clearly. Now, in the text, there's two simple statements. I want you to notice them. In verse 12, the reason that the one who believes in him will do greater works than Jesus does, he says, is because I'm going to the Father. I want you to notice that very carefully. The reason the believer will do greater works than Jesus is because... Jesus is going to the Father. That is a critical limitation or at least uh, a critical definition of what is meant by uh, you're going to do greater works. Well, why are you going to do greater works? Well, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to the Father. So it isn't that somehow in me or in you there is some power to do these greater works. These greater works are going to happen because Jesus is going to go to the Father. The second statement that's interesting is that the is in verse 13 when he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So whatever you ask, that will I do, has the parameters of that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So in other words, this is not a statement that Jesus is saying. Well, you want a brand new BMW whatever is out on the market nowadays and you can just ask for it and that will be that. No, he's talking about asking for something that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there are the parameters, there's the limitations to that right off in asking certainly also in his name and then I need to understand what that means. So two interesting little phrases placed within this number one that i'm going to the father is the reason the greater works and number two you can ask me anything so that the father may be glorified in the son 
let's take that last statement and let's understand what this means of that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And the best place I know to go to that and understand that would be Isaiah chapter 49. So I want to quickly walk down through this. Maybe some of you uh, two or three years ago when Brent went through Isaiah might remember some of this text. But Isaiah chapter 49 gives us an interesting picture of, of, of the purpose that Jesus has when he comes to the earth and the purpose that his overall uh, work is supposed to create. So in Isaiah chapter 49, if you'll just begin at verse 1, the scripture says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Well, you can already see the Messiah is speaking here. He is talking about that the Father, the Lord, has called him for a purpose. And then verse 3 tells us the purpose. He said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Very interesting that Jesus is referred to as Israel. And the reason he refers to him as Israel is because Jesus will be the true Israelite, the one who fulfills everything that the the, uh, physical nation Israel failed to do. Jesus will come and accomplish that, and he will then be the true Israel, and therefore is referred to it that way. But notice what he's called to do. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that's what we read Jesus saying, isn't it? Jesus talked about in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. So the whole point of Jesus being called by the Father to do this great work was so that the Father could glorify Himself, could be glorified in the world. The very thing that the physical nation did not do. The very thing that the physical nation failed to do, now the Messiah Israel will accomplish that fact. All right. Notice in verse 4, but I said, so here is the response of the Messiah. I just think this is interesting. You kind of get in on a little conversation in heaven between the Father and the Son. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. That's a shocking statement that the Messiah would actually turn to the Father and say, well, uh, we tried that and it didn't work. I mean, it was pretty well vain. I labored in vain. It didn't accomplish what I hoped to accomplish. And you could think in terms, of course, the rejection of Israel and other such things. But notice the Messiah goes on with confidence in the Father and says at the end of verse 4, Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. In other words, I have absolute confidence in you, Father, that you're going to rectify that situation. But my work is not going to be in vain, that it is going to be accomplished. And indeed, the Lord replies that that's correct in verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back, bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, uh, Messiah, you are exactly right. We need to do more. Your work deserves far more than just bringing back those who were in Jacob. Your work needs to be brought to a light to brought as a light to for salvation to the end of the earth, and that's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to accomplish the very thing that you have said you had labored in vain, and I'm going to bring it to a greater completion. Not just Jacob. Not just. The, the Jewish nation am I going to do this for? But it's going to be salvation to the very end of the earth. Ah, so we're, we're feeling more confident. And then the Lord goes on, verse 7, Thus says the Lord, The Redeemer of Israel and, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. Again, you see the Messiah abhorred by the Jewish nation. The servant of rulers. But then there's a reversal. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. In other words, God says, I am faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to fulfill what you said was in vain. And I am going to make it so that you are truly going to be a king of kings. And kings are going to bow before you. And we are going to reverse that because of my faithfulness to you. And then one one more little section here, verse 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Now the Messiah back in verse verse three, verse four had said, "I labored in vain." What, what, what's going to happen here? And now the Father turns around and he says, "Nope. In a time of favor, I have answered you. I'm going to come and answer your plea that you need help in order to make your work so it is not in vain. And I'm going to make it so there will be a favorable time that I answer you. There will be a day of salvation that I will help you." And then, going on in verse 8, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. And so the releasing of prisoners, bringing people out of darkness, light again is going to shine, and salvation is going to be brought to the end of the earth. Okay, quick little go-through of that text tells us what? Two main things. Number one, that God had chosen the Messiah in order for God to be glorified. Number two, the Messiah responds with, I need help. My work appears at first to be in vain. Will you come to the rescue and make this more more valuable than what has seemed to have happened so far? And the Father replies, yes. I will not just make you as a light to the Jacob, to Jacob and to Israel, but a light to the end of the earth. And not only that, I am going to help you. In a day of salvation, at an appropriate time, I'm going to come and help you and make it so that your work is not in vain. Now, how do we enter that? Where in this text do you see us? Well, at first, I don't see us in the text. Until I go to the New Testament and find out there's a couple of passages here that give us a picture of how we are connected to this very text. Because the Apostle Paul, in the 13th chapter of Acts, quotes this text in a surprising way. 
in Acts chapter 13, he is dealing with the people in Antioch of Pisidia, in the Galatian region. And when they have rejected the teaching, the Jewish people at least, have rejected the teaching of Paul, we see in verse 46 of Acts 13, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is to you Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth." Now notice what Paul says. And I think Paul, you know, sometimes Paul just doesn't know his Bible very well. Would you Would you suggest that? He doesn't know his Bible very well. I mean, look what he said here. He says, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. And you say, well, wait a minute, Paul. I just got through reading Isaiah 49 where that's quoted. And he wasn't talking about you, Paul. And he wasn't talking about all, you and Barnabas or anybody else bringing the gospel message. He was talking about the Messiah. And Paul rightly points out, whatever you read in Isaiah that is, that is referring to something the Messiah would do on something the Messiah would be, It is also referring to what the Messiah's offspring would do and be. And that is right even if you were to talk about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song, the crucifixion verse. You'd say, well, that surely isn't talking to us. Uh, Let's see. What did Jesus say when he talked about his upcoming death in Matthew chapter 16? He said, you cannot be my disciple unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Well, what do you know? Uh, We are the offspring of Jesus and we will do whatever Jesus was commissioned to do that we will do as well. And Paul understood that, which is exactly why he quotes this text and says, this is a commandment even to us, not just the Messiah. The second little statement that's given in Isaiah that is also referred to in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians chapter uh, <clears throat> chapter uh, 5 and verse 18 through chapter 6 and verse 2. So notice also that text and let's just take a look beginning at 2 Corinthians 5 and read from verse 18 down through chapter 6 verse 2. That will give us a text that gives us a little more complete idea. Paul has already brought this together with referring to himself and the others with him, but then showing the Corinthian Christians that what they, Paul, Barnabas, others, are doing is what they ought, every Christian ought to be doing. And so in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, he, he says these particular words. And I'm in 1 Corinthians, and that doesn't help a bit. Uh, so let me get over here. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, Paul says here, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him. Now just notice that little statement there. Working together with him. Who's working together with God? Well, the apostles here, Paul's referring to himself and the others and showing the Christians in Corinth there to be doing the same thing. We're working together with God. Ever thought about what you do is working together with God? Not simply, well, God told me to do something and so I got to do it. But here he says, working together with God. Now watch this, working together with Him. Then we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, quoting our text in Isaiah 49, verse 8. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time, behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, Corinthians, don't reject this. We are working together with God to help the Messiah bring salvation to the end of the earth. That's exactly what you should be doing. You should not receive this grace in vain because we're working together with God. You should be doing the same. We're working together with God to help the Messiah. So consider consider the importance of that. How does God help the Messiah? Well, first, He makes us a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Secondly, He is called upon us to help Him help the Messiah. The Messiah has gone to heaven and is reigning as King. And we are called upon by God as the Messiah's helpers, or as God's helpers, to help the Messiah bring salvation to the end of the earth. Because He said, at an acceptable time, I've helped you. In a day of salvation, I've come to you, and now is the acceptable time. Well, who's going to help the Messiah? Well, surprisingly enough, it isn't the band of angels. <laughs> surprisingly enough, God hasn't chosen a bunch of spirit creatures in heaven to help Him bring the gospel message to the world. He chose us to help Him help the Messiah. I, I have to say that to me is pretty shocking. Because if there was, if I were to suggest to God someone to choose to help Him bring the gospel to the end of the earth, it would not be me. And I would imagine most of you would say, yeah, not me either. I mean, I'm, I'm not that good at anything. I'm not, I stumble all over myself when I try to talk to somebody. What, Lord, why would you choose me? I'm not equipped to do that. Well, I think we all feel exactly that way. Now, look one more thing here. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17, I want you to notice another little phrase here that Paul gives that will help this connection. Paul has said here in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How many of you have done just what I've done? I like verse 17. I don't know what verse 16 says, but I like verse 17, right? Like verse 17 says, the old's passed away, the new's come, and we're a new creation in Christ. 
I don't know what that verse 16 was talking about. All I know is, is we're new in Christ and we're a new creation. Let's sing a song about it. But what's verse 16 say? Verse 16 is Paul is pointing out that since, as he says in verse 15, that all of us are have died and therefore are no longer living for ourselves, therefore because of that we don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. In other words, our perception when we see people is not a fleshly perception. We see people as people who are lost souls in need of salvation. We don't see them and start going, wow, you know, they kind of look junky. Wow, look what they put in their chopping cart. They must be really bad sinners. Wow, I don't like being around them. They say these words or that words. No, we see them in a different way. We don't see them in an earthly carnal sense. We have become a new creation. Someone created by God who is going to be God's helper to bring salvation to the end of the earth. So we see people differently than what we have done before. We see them as those in need of the light and salvation that we are helping God give to this great work. That's the idea then of of the text. And we are then this new creation helping the Lord do these very things. Now, let's take a look at this second phrase for a second before we pull all this together. Jesus says that you're going to be you're going to do greater works than me because I go to the Father. What's involved in Jesus going to the Father? I think a text that will help us with that is Acts chapter 1 verse verse 1. Now think about Acts 1:1. Just hear the words. You're acquainted with Acts most of you. Hear the words. Luke says this. The first account, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first account, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. When I wrote the book of Luke, Luke says, I was telling you about everything Jesus began to do. I wasn't telling you everything Jesus has done or is going to do. I told you about everything He's began to do. What I'm about to tell you is what Jesus is going to continue to do. Luke is about what Jesus did on the earth. Acts is what Jesus is doing as the enthroned king. Have you ever noticed how many times throughout the book of Acts there is mention of the Lord doing a certain work, of the Lord working with disciples? It's said over and over again. Look at these words. When you think of the the text, how about in chapter 1, verse 8? Again, a text that most of you know well. Here are the words. But you shall be witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, power will come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. To the end of the earth. Wait a minute. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah? You're going to be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. And then Jesus in John 14 makes the statement, you're going to do greater works. The believer is going to do greater works. And why is he going to? Because I'm going to the Father. And what we see is that there's two key threads that are found in the book of Acts. One is prayer. 
And the second is the Lord constantly working with the disciples. I mean, you just can't find a text in which he doesn't say it. Everything is about whatever the Christians did, whatever the disciples did, whatever the apostles did, the Lord was working with them. You even see it right there in Acts 2.47. The Lord added to the church. The Lord was doing these things. And every time Peter preached or John preached or whoever Paul preached, they always referred to this is the Lord working. So here is the king of his kingdom doing his work, working with the disciples to spread the gospel message. And that gospel message is being done because the Lord is doing the work and because the disciples, as they do the work, are relying on the Lord. They're praying to Him all the time. The the book of Luke has more mention of prayer than any of the other gospel accounts. Book of Acts is filled with mention of the disciples constantly praying. What are they praying about? They're praying about the work that they are doing because they know this is the Lord's work. Even in in Acts chapter 4, when remember, the apostles were threatened. Peter and John were threatened. And they went back to their own company. And what did they do? They prayed. And they quoted Acts, I mean, Psalm chapter 2. And said, Lord, you're the king. And the scripture says in Psalm 2 that they would fight against you, but that you would be the king and that you would overcome them. So we're praying to you to give us boldness to keep speaking that your word may go out. And boom, the Lord shook the house and gave them boldness and they kept right on speaking. What was going on there? Well, the Lord said, I'm the king. And we are going to get this job done. And God is helping me and you're helping God help me. That's the whole idea then of the text. That shouldn't be surprising to us. When we read the Great Commission, what do we read? And if you put yourself in the position of those 12 men, I tell you what, I'd be freaking out. Here's Jesus. He says, well, I'm raised. I spent 40 days with you. I've been telling you about the kingdom. Now I'm about to go up into this cloud. And the apostles are like knees are knocking. And he says, oh, by the way, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And because all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And I'm going, oh no. You want me to do what? I'm a fisherman. I, I can't even read or write half the time. What are you talking about, Lord? And he says, and behold, I am with you, even to the end of the world. Every time I read that, I think of I think of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, and God saying, "Go into the land," and the spies go in and go. Well, we saw a lot of kneecaps when we're in there. <laughs> we're grasshoppers in their sight. This is impossible. And Moses and Aaron stood up and said, the Lord will be with us. And Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will be with us. It doesn't matter. I have to say, and I'm talking about myself, you can apply it to you if you you feel like it's true for you. But we're wimps. We're sitting here, we we just look at this big old world, we just this little group. 
like these little old Israelites who can't go into Canaan because they're the big old giants. And out there in the world, it's the big old giants, you know. And they're big and bad and sinful and terrible and they'll chew us up and spit us out. And the Lord said, what? I am with you. I'm going to be with you. They can't win because I'm the king. You see, greater works will you do because I go to the Father and enthroned as king and commissioned to do this and you are my disciples and you're going to help the Father help me get this done. And therefore, you're going to do greater works. And you can ask me anything you need as you do that great work. And I'm going to do it for you. Why am I going to do it for you? Because I'm the king and I promised. Because that's the work. And because that's what I want to be done. And you think I'm going to fail? Did Israel fail when they finally went in? Did anybody die in a six year war? Only 36 from the point of Achan sin. And other than that, I can't even believe. A six year war and nobody dies? On the Lord's side, at least. And we're scared. Yep, I am. I'm scared. <laughs> That's what we do. And we think we're just so small. Look at these words in Ezekiel 36. Tell me if this doesn't fit in with the very thing that Jesus was talking about. He says in Ezekiel 36, 37 and 38, Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, and he's talking about the days of the Messiah. I, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I always thought that was a very interesting way of saying anything. The Lord says, okay... When I create this new people and I cleanse them and I put them on their land and I make them all this new nation and everything, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let them ask me to increase their people like a flock. Like a flock during the feast times in Jerusalem. How many animals were there in Jerusalem during the feast times? Josephus estimated a million animals being killed during the Passover. Wow. He says, I'll tell you what, just ask me. And we're sitting here praying about everything but asking you. Wow. Just ask me. And I'll do it. Go ahead. You know, he's just like, go ahead. It's an amazing statement that he makes there. Look also at this. You see the prophecy in Ezekiel. God saying, ask me and I'll do it. And then you see Jesus repeating the same thing. Ask me anything when it comes to glorifying my Father. What you need when you go out, you ask me and I'm going to do it for you. Go ahead. Ask me. And you're going to do greater works than these. Now let's conclude just with tying this together. Try to understand what this really means of how does the believer really do greater works than Jesus. The first text that I'll refer you to is Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Jesus has said this already before. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
Among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now he's not saying, Jesus is not saying, all the way up until John the Baptist, there was no person that was a greater man than John the Baptist. No, there was no person who was a greater prophet, who had a greater mission than what John the Baptist had. Everyone else foretold of things. John actually introduces the kingdom. He introduces Jesus. There is no one greater than the work that John does to actually introduce the Messiah. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Greater in what way? Because we do greater works. We bring people into the kingdom. John foretold of the kingdom about to come. John got ready for people, uh, people ready for the kingdom. He prepared a people for the Lord. We bring people to the Lord and the kingdom. There is greater than even what John did. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. When he says that the disciple, the believer, will do greater works than Jesus. We bring people into the kingdom. Jesus had not been enthroned yet. Why will we do greater works? Because I go to my Father. And when I go to my Father, I receive a kingdom. And then you will begin to help the Father. Help me fill this kingdom with disciples and bring people in because you will be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, when I read all that, I'm sure you're just like me. I'm a a bit intimidated. Well, Lord, I'm I'm like Moses. You know, I, I can't speak well. I don't have a lot of talent. Why don't you just send somebody else? Yeah, that's that's why he gave the promise. The Lord knew we'd struggle with that. I'm so glad he knew we'd struggle with that. He knew we would struggle with that. And that's why he gave the promise. You will do greater works because I'm going to the Father. It isn't because of you. It isn't because you're going to somehow muster up fantastic talent that you've never had before. It's because I'm going to be the king. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to be with you to the end of the world. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And you can ask me anything in my name as you go about this business to glorify my Father, and I will do it for you. Well, that kind of messed up all my excuses. And that's exactly what the Lord told Moses. And that's exactly what the Lord told Israel when they went into Canaan. Now, the question is... Are we asking? It is interesting that Paul makes a reference as well to that passage in Isaiah 49 when God referred to Jesus as Israel. And Paul said, And neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Yes, when he called the Messiah Israel, he called all the Messiah's offspring Israel. We're the Israel to make God glorified in the world, to bring glory to him 
And He will be with us. And He will help us. Do you think God would help us if we don't ask Him? Do you think God's going to help us bring salvation to the world of God if we don't ask Him? If we don't try to do what He told us to do, do you think He's going to help us? If we don't bother to try to make connections with people that we meet, just build a relationship so we might have an opportunity later on, if we don't even try those things, if we don't reach out and do something, do we think He's going to help us? Again, when God destroyed the great giants in the land of Canaan, He didn't have Israel sit on the east side of the Jordan River and say, just wait a minute, I'll kill them all and then you can come in. <coughs> no. He said, cross the river, go in, Put your sword on and go into battle against nine foot, six inch giants. And if I'm thinking carnally, I'm thinking, Lord, that's the nuttiest thing I ever heard in my life. And somehow, some way, they pulled the sword, and as they used that sword, they were so good at it, it was crazy. And the other people just fumbled around and giants were falling all over the place. Weird scene, isn't it? And the Lord said, that's what I'm going to do for you. Yes, there's giants out there. But they have nothing over us because the Lord will be with us. So, when it's all said and done, we're called to do greater works. And how are we going to do it? Because we're going to spend time in prayer. It isn't because of our talent. It isn't because of our greatness. It isn't because of anything. We're going to work on it. We're going to try to get the knowledge we should have. But when it's all said and done, the Lord's going to be the giving the power through us to make that happen. And every time that you meet somebody and that you have an opportunity and you're going, oh, I'm so bad at this, you're going to stop and go, wait a minute. Jesus said, I could ask Him, and He'll help me. I've missed that a lot of part of my life. What about you? I think it's time we quit relying on ourselves and understand we can ask the Lord. You're not a Christian. We urge you to think about your situation. Think about what the need is that you have to be right with the Lord, because the Lord is the one that you want to be on His side. You want to help the Father, help the Messiah, and be His disciple. If we can help you in any way, we'd be glad to do so while together we stand and while we sing.